The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Storyblocks. It's the first and only subscription-based stock media company that offers unlimited downloads of member library content for a modest annual fee of just $149 per year per site, while providing its contributing artists 100% of the sales revenue from their photographs, video, or audio. To find out more, visit storyblocks.com forward slash candid. We also have the support of LinkedIn Learning, the online learning platform with thousands of expert-led video tutorials to help you build your creative, tech, and business skills. For a free 30-day trial, visit linkedin.com forward slash candid and start achieving more today. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. I recently returned from San Antonio, Texas, where I attended 4x5 Photo Fest. There I had the opportunity to meet some amazingly talented photographers, not only from San Antonio, but also Houston, Austin, and other towns and cities. I also had the pleasure of interviewing two talented photographers with amazing stories to tell. This week we share my conversation with Reg Campbell, a wedding and editorial photographer. Though his grandfather and father were photographers, Reggie didn't have aspirations of becoming a professional photographer himself. But when he did, he took his tenacity and commitment that he learned playing football and bodybuilding to his career behind the camera. It's a mindset that also helped him when he was diagnosed earlier this year with leukemia. Though the disease and the treatment took its toll on his body, he found that the love of his family and his passion for photography helped see him through one of the most challenging moments of his young life. Only two weeks after a successful bone marrow transplant, he took the stage with me in San Antonio. Good afternoon, San Antonio. Oh, come on. You guys having a coffee yet? Yeah, it's a little better. Well, first of all, thanks to everyone for inviting me out to, to San Antonio uh, to have a chance to speak with uh, um, the Reg here. Uh, I'm very excited to be uh, participating in 4x5, and I'm particularly uh, looking forward to speaking with you, Reg. So welcome. Uh, thank you all for having me. Um, well, I want to start off because you've had a very interesting year. Oh, to, yeah. to say the least, <laughs> uh, you're oh, diagnosed yeah. with um, leukemia a little less than a year ago. Yeah, and uh, you went through a whole process. And oh, I certainly want to take the time to talk to you about your work. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I'd, I'd like to start off with that with that journey, since no doubt has been you know in the forefront of your life and right. for right. for, for this past year. But tell me about when you discovered that there was something wrong. Uh, let's see, that was. Early, early March, um, I was getting ready for a bodybuilding competition and uh, 
all of a sudden, my whole body just pretty much started hurting. My ribs were hurting. A uh, month after that, I couldn't walk because my lower back was swollen. I went to the ER and the doctor, he took some blood, took like 12 vials of blood actually. He came back and said, there's something in your blood. Then he came back an hour later and told me, hey man, you basically have leukemia. And uh, I'm not gonna lie, for like the first 10 minutes after he told me that, I was crying like a little girl. After that, you know, I, I had the mindset, okay, I got this. What do I have to do to beat it? So that basically took us all the way until October 20th when I got my uh, transplant. And I got out the hospital November 3rd. And you were going in and out of the hospital this whole time. You would be yeah. out for extended periods of time? Um, every time I went in the hospital, I went in for three to four weeks. I get out for a week, go back in for three to four weeks, get out for a week for uh, about seven, eight months. Yeah. Oh. Mm -hmm. You went through six rounds of chemotherapy. Right. Six rounds of chemotherapy, one round of radiation. Full body radiation, which sucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sucked so bad. Yeah, had to do that. Just get get that um, bone marrow that killed my bone marrow. Gave me my little sister's bone marrow, and um, I'm here. I'm here. I'm, and you I'm were still telling me, right. <laughs> and you were telling me uh, about, uh, uh, earlier that uh, your sister is about eight to ten years. She's twelve young, years twelve years younger. And you yeah. guys used to call her the accident. Yeah, she's she was the accident. Yeah, but now she needs a new nickname. Yeah, well, we'll figure it out. Yeah, she, she tells me every day, I saved your life. I saved your life. So, yeah. Yeah, when yeah. she wants a ride or she wants something, you just, mm -hmm. just go, you just oh, go. Oh, yeah, she's going to get it now. You go, yeah, yeah. yeah right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's going to get it now. I have um, no choice. One of the interesting things about your, your, your journey is that you were sharing it on your blog. Right. And right. I thought that that was really interesting because when people go through this, um, they oftentimes don't want to impose on other people. Right. And they don't want to sort of have to share. People are very awkward with someone who's sick already. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah. the choice for you to use your skill as a photographer to document what you were going through, mm -hmm. I thought was an interesting one. Did, when, at what point did you decide, maybe I want to document this? Well, I've always shot everything in my life, especially when my little daughter was born. I think after like two weeks of being in the hospital, I was like, yo, man, I'm so bored. Um, <laughs> I need to do something. <laughs> One of my good friends, her name's Heather, uh, Heather Pariah, she's a photographer in uh, Portland. And she was like, I mean, you got your camera with you. Why don't you just shoot? Shoot something, shoot the hospital, do something yeah. to you know, take your, your mind off the time. And I was like, you know what? I, I mean, I might as well. So I had my wife bring like five of my cameras and and I shot myself. Yeah. My first time ever shooting myself, which is the weirdest thing to do to me. Yeah. It was my first, I've been a photographer 20-some years, and this is my first time shooting myself. Yeah, that, that was something I wanted to talk to you about because, you know, you, you take a lot of pictures of other people. Mm -hmm. And I think the act of being a photographer, whether you're photo photographing something for the purpose of a portrait right. or if you're doing sort of candidly where people may not be necessarily aware they're making the photograph. right. right. There's a there's amount of surrender that happens mm -hmm. yeah. as the subject, right? Yeah. And there's a level of vulnerability that you have when you are the subject, right? But when you turn the camera on yourself, it's totally different. So how difficult was it to to do that, especially since you you know you're you're fit, you're, you're bodybuilder, you're very conscious of mm -hmm. your, your your physique, right? How difficult was it to finally turn the camera on yourself and to look at how you actually 
were were looking. Yeah, yeah. That was um, extremely hard, extremely hard. Um, because before I started bodybuilding, I was a extremely overweight young kid. Mm-hmm. I was like 310 pounds. So once I lost the weight, I felt like, okay, I'm never going to show myself unless I'm in shape. When I went through the cancer, I lost so much muscle and so much weight mm-hmm. that it kind of messes with you psychologically. You know, like uh, I don't look like I used to look. So am I the same person that I used to be? Because when you put so much emphasis on how you look, especially as a bodybuilder, when you put so much emphasis on how you look, it kind of destroys you to see yourself not like that anymore. Yeah. You know, all that hard work and everything is basically gone. But it also helped me to show that, you know, that's not everything. You'll get it back. You just got to work. You work to get it, you work to get it back. That's basically what it taught me. So, you know, having this limited space in which to work with, because you, as you said, you were, it would be in the hospital for extended periods of time, mm-hmm. and you would be relatively confined to your room unless you got yeah. sent out to get some tests or something. Right. So right. it's not like you have the whole world for which to photograph. Right. You're, you're confined. So the options in terms of what to photograph becomes extremely limited. Mm-hmm. Did you find that challenge sort of helped you in terms of seeing and sort of finding new and interesting things to photograph? I would say, yeah, because after a while, you just have to, well, you can shoot the big things at the beginning, but after five months of shooting the big things, you know, you, you really try to hone in on the small details of like your chemo and what your chemo pack is saying and just little things that you see through the day that other people might not see. Yeah. You know, when they come visit you or the stuff that you didn't see when you got there a month ago or two months ago, you know, you start noticing and becoming aware of um, other things that happen in your day the more you try to shoot it. Yeah, yeah one of the things you wrote about it was, was the pick line. Oh, yeah. Uh, Man, why don't you describe for people who are not familiar with that, what that is mm-hmm. and why that was an important element that you wanted to include in, um, in the My pick line is pretty much where they gave me the chemo, my medication, antibiotics, where they re- drew blood. Um, I had four pick lines on this arm. It don't feel good when they put it in. Basically, a pick line is a... It's a long 50-inch tube where they stick it into your arm and it goes all the way into your heart. And they put the medication into your heart and, um, yeah, it's kind of awesome when you see it because you can see the little line. They have a little little camera on your chest that shows up on the screen and you can see the little, the little cable going through and it stops right in your heart. It's so weird, really weird. <laughs> and then when they take it out, it feels like a, um, a string being pulled across your chest. It doesn't hurt. It hurts going in. It doesn't hurt going out. Kind of like constipation. <laughs> so, yeah. As you started sharing that, mm-hmm. um, what was the reaction? Did, or did you have a reaction that surprised you in terms of how people responded um, to what you were sharing on the blog? Yeah. It, it, a lot of people, you know, t- tell me, thank you for being so open. I, I don't know. I guess you could say I was being open. I just wanted to show that, you know, because when I first found out that I had leukemia, there's not a lot of resources out there that shows you what you're really going to go through. They basically tell you what you have, but they don't tell you what you go through. They don't tell you about the every four hours of getting your vitals taken. They don't tell you about the um, getting your blood taken at 12 o'clock at night and 6 p.m. at night and stuff like that. They don't tell you about you know the chemo making you 
nauseated, dizzy, stuff like that. And I just want to show through pictures, you know, if you have somebody that's going through chemo or leukemia or cancer in general, what they truly will go through. I was trying to portray that in my pictures. Whether you're creating a video, a newsletter, a corporate report, or a podcast, you are always in need of quality content. They could be photographs, illustration, video clips, or audio, and the biggest challenge is often the time involved in finding just the right element for your project and doing so at an affordable price. Storyblocks provides the perfect solution. Not only is it affordable, it also provides income for the content creators themselves, whether they are a photographer, videographer, or illustrator. Storyblocks provides the perfect solution. Not only is it affordable, it also provides income for the content creators themselves, whether they are a photographer, videographer, or illustrator. That's because Storyblocks provides you access to high-resolution photo, vector, or audio, and they are all royalty-free. And for creators who contribute their work, it's also great because they enjoy 100% of the sales commission. To find out more, go to storyblocks.com forward slash candid to get all the stock images, video, and audio you can imagine for just $149. That's S-T-O-R-Y-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash candid to download anything from thousands of images, video, and tracks, and unlock discounts for millions more. And one of the things whenever someone faces a situation where their, their life is at risk, it's an opportunity for self-reflection mm-hmm. and an opportunity to sort of rethink what's important. Right. You're a young man, you know, and for a lot of people who are your age or younger, it's all about the career. It's all about the pictures. It's all mm-hmm. about sort of moving ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that you are very, you know, you're very aggressive in terms of what you want and getting what you want. Right. But how did this process that you've gone through the whole year sort of change the way you see all of those things mm-hmm. and your approach to them. I would say the one thing, um, I mean, okay, when you're a parent, you love your kids. But being away from my daughter for like, all right, hold on. <laughs> being away from my daughter for like a month and a half, um, <laughs> it's okay. Um, it, it really lets you know what's important, you know? Like you, when you say, you know, it's the little things, like I don't get mad at her if she spills something now. I don't get mad at her, you know, she's two and a half. They're gonna spill, they're gonna do this and do that. But it just really puts in perspective what, you, what you're doing it for, what you're working for, what you're shooting pictures for, whatever your job may be. It just really puts in perspective what you're doing it all for and how much it means in the total spectrum of it all, you know? Well, you're a third generation photographer. Your yeah. grandfather was a wedding photographer, your dad was a photojournalist, but that didn't automatically mean that you're going to get into right. being a man behind the camera. You had other <laughs> interests. So tell, uh, me about, tell me about you know, your journey into picking up a camera in the first place. How, mm-hmm. how, did, how did he make the decision that maybe you want to make a career of it? Man, at first I didn't really want to be a photographer. I thought that was lame. I grew up in the, you know, I grew up in the hood, so you know I wanted to play basketball, not basketball, but uh, football. That's what really was really on my mind in high school: was playing football, lifting weights, stuff like that. When I got to college, I, I, I kind of my my uh, grandfather sent me a uh, camera. He was just like, just shoot, just shoot it, you know. I've been around cameras since I was fourteen, but uh, 
He was just like, just shoot it. Send me some pictures. Let me know. He wasn't that nice when he um, critiqued them. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's how I learned. He, he'll tell me if it was straight up crap. He'll tell me it was crap. Throw it away. Don't shoot like that again. You know? From college on, I, I had a camera with me pretty much every day. And that, that was like, what, 96? Ooh, I'm old. But uh, that's like 96. Uh, yeah. Well, if you're old, I'm ancient. <laughs> So how did you sort of segue into starting to do wedding photography? Um, I've been shooting weddings, uh, 2005, something like that. Um, I just, I saw that there was a niche for the way I shot weddings. Yeah. I saw a, um, there, was, there was nobody shooting like me in Houston like that at that time. So I was like, hey, I might as well try this. And then when I moved here, it was a totally different ball game. I think here is when I really saw that I could, you know, make a name for myself. So how is this different from, from Houston? The markets are different. The markets are different. Um, Houston is more of a modern type market. And here it's, a, it's more of a um, country chic type market. Okay. Something like that. Um, there's a lot more ballroom um, weddings in Houston. Black tie ballroom weddings. And here is more, a lot of more outdoor weddings. So I've noticed that it was way different. So what did you have to do differently in order to sort of cater to the market? Because you're talking about, you know, what the wedding or the events are. Mm -hmm. But how did you have to change in terms of how you approach mm -hmm. clients, procure business? Mm -hmm. Basically, my whole website changed from when I was in Houston to here. I started showing more, showing more um, outside country chic type weddings, the ones I was getting. So... I started showing more um, outside weddings. You learn what the market is really quick when you get to a new area. Okay. Especially if uh, you meet with a couple of brides and they tell you what they don't see on your website, uh, then okay. now you'll learn really quick, like, okay, well, I need to show more of this. I need to show more of that, you know? Yeah, because if they don't see it on your website, they think you can't shoot it. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And if they, think they can't, if they think that you can't shoot it, then more than likely they're not gonna hire you. Okay. Yeah. But that progressed into doing more documentary work. Right. He did a book called America the Bold. Right. And mm -hmm. tell me about the inception of that idea and mm -hmm. what led you to, to do something that was more, for lack of a better word, substantive. Um, I would say it was after uh, Trayvon Martin got shot. And that really hit home for me because uh, I have two nephews. They're, well, at the time, they were... They were um, they were 16 and 13. And I just feel like there was not many voices telling or showing um, basically how it is to be black in America. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like God was telling me, hey, you need to go shoot this, you know? Your weddings are okay. Everything's good with your weddings. Um, you're doing okay. You need to go document how it is and show people how it is. I started that, it was about five years ago, four years ago. I've been doing, shooting, shooting whatever I saw and what I saw to need, I thought needed to be shown for about five, six years. Yeah. So for people who haven't seen the images, what, what does America the Bow look like? What is it consistent? America the Bow is basically documenting the racial and social uh, class stigmatas, because people think, you know, uh, when you see a, a, a black guy with a hoodie, you, most people automatically think, oh, he's a thug, you know? 
which is not necessarily the case because hell, I wear hoodies and I don't think I'm a thug, but you know. So I, I try to show that just because somebody looks a certain way, acts a certain way, talk a certain way, don't necessarily mean that they're like that. Mm-hmm. They're what you think your perceived notion of them are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that happened during that, during that time is that you began sharing content about what you felt it's like to be black in America. Oh, yeah. Which is heavily politicized yeah. in this country and, especially, and no doubt in this state as well. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but a lot of people would say, stay out of politics. You're going to hurt your income if you start getting mm-hmm. into stuff like this. And it no doubt influenced um, some of the people who may have chosen to work with you or people who... We're working, working with you. Yeah. So tell me about that, that outcome. <laughs> well, when I, after I started with America the Boat, I felt like I needed to voice my opinion rather than just take pictures also. So um, once I started voicing my opinion, you learn who your friends are very fast, especially when it comes to race. When it comes to race and uh, talking about like social stuff and, and politics, you learn what people think of you, they might be nice, they might be accepting of you, or quote unquote accepting of you, but when you talk about race, it's almost like they want you to say, uh, you know, the civil rights happened 50 years ago, get over it. Well, it happened 50 years ago, get over it, but the remnants of still of what went on at that time still lingers on today. Just because it happened 30, 40 years ago don't mean doesn't equal equality. It just means it's better than it was 30, 40 years ago. And I think we're still far away from equality. Just because a a black man can make millions of dollars don't mean he's equal to somebody else. Money doesn't equal what what people perceive you as. Mm -hmm. I I still talk about it because I feel like we're not where we should be right now. So tell me about the, the journey in terms of producing the images for that book. Because mm-hmm. it's like you can, anytime someone starts a personal project, they, they start off with sort of an initial idea mm-hmm. in terms of what they're going to go for. Right. Then they start working on the project. Mm-hmm. Then it takes a life out of, of its own. Starts right. changing, starts evolving. Right. So mm-hmm. tell me about what, how it transformed from its initial inception and what you found it turned into over time. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> America Boat actually started off as a, as a lame-ass um, <laughs> project about you know, documenting people with the American flag. And I was like, yeah, this, I mean, it, I thought it was a cool project, but after a while of shooting it, I was like, uh, this is not what I want it to be. And the other images for America Bowl was just me documenting black America. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, this, this resonates more with me than this project right here. So I'm just gonna change it to that. The reason why I call it America the Bowl is because America's supposed to be the best country in the world. And if we could do all this, I think we're bold enough to, you know, fight or, or talk about racism and talk about sexism. Like we talk about guns and, and we talk about the things that America loves so much. I think that we're bold enough to talk about the other things we need to talk about to further as a nation. Yeah, one of the interesting things when you work on a pr- project and how long did you work on? You said you were working on it for four years? 
Uh, Miracle Boat, well, it was four years when the book came out, so I guess it's like five years. Okay, now. so what's always interesting for a photographer when they're working on a project mm -hmm. is when they're close to done and now it's time to sit down and edit the work, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you've taken hundreds if not thousands of photographs and right. all of a sudden you gotta like, you know, call it, call it down into something that works within a book mm -hmm. or a gallery ex exhibition. Right. So tell me about uh, the challenge of taking all that you had shot mm -hmm. and trying to make sense of it within the confines of a book. Um, that was extremely hard because I don't call in the regular sense of calling. Like I said, I, I grew up around film. I grew up around um, my dad and my grandfather being photographers. I grew up around other photographers. So the way I call is I print all the pictures in four by five and then I put them up on my wall so I could see I can see how the print looks next to another picture. Okay. That took forever. That oh, took man. forever. But it, it, it helped me, you know, figure out what I wanted to see in the book and um, what I didn't, what would work next to this image and everything. So it really helped out, but it just took me an, an exorbitant amount of time. Man, that, that is, I, I strongly believe in printing the photographs, putting on a wall, and living with the pictures. Mm-hmm. It's uh, way different than looking at all of Oh, uh, yeah, the computer, you're just flicking through them, and you don't get to really sort of right. take them in, especially images in relationship to each other. Mm -hmm. You know, you have, a, you have a, a sort of a compare mode in Lightroom where you can put two images yeah, next to it's, each other, but nah, it's, not it's not the, the same, same as putting those prints up there. It's not the same. So how, how, what was your sort of initial cut of images, um, and then what did it finally I started with like 560-some images. Quickly, you, you know the, the initial one is always the easiest because... I cut it down to about two something. And then that's when it got really hard um, after that, because I had a lot of images. I was like, oh my God, I love this one. But it just didn't go with the whole scheme of things, you know? So I, I, I think I have about 110 pictures in the book. I think I have a, yeah, I think I ended at 110. Ones that I felt like really hit home was what I wanted to show. And at what point did you sort of solicit the feedback of other people to get their thoughts on it? Um, yeah. I really don't, <laughs> it's gonna sound bad, but I really don't care what people say. So <laughs> I, I basically I asked my uh, my mama because that's my mama, my sisters. I don't really ask any other photographers about the layout and everything of the book. Mm -hmm. um, I just ask pretty much ask the people I know who will tell me straight up I don't like it. Yeah, I do like it. You know, um, and then from that point when I got their feedback. After that, um, I pretty much sent the book to print and started marketing. Yeah. Put and, it out there. And that's another challenge. That's get, a get big the word challenge. out. That's a big challenge. So why, what did you do in order to get the word out? <clears throat> with, the, with that one, um, <laughs> Facebook and Instagram, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I want, right when I was gonna do a gallery showing, I got sick. Mm. When I was trying to put it all together, I got sick. So hopefully next year, um, I want to do a gallery showing of America the Bowl. Okay. Yeah, I could get that together. Another one of your projects is Equal? Equal Portraits, yeah. So tell me about that. Um, actually, it's like a, it's, it's a spinoff of America the Bold. America the Bold is more documentary, and um, I didn't really get to talk to a lot of the people I shot because uh, it was more, you know, street, documentary. What happened is what happened, and that's it. Um, when it came to equal portraits, I actually wanted to know what um, 
the people thought and mm-hmm. the stuff they went through. This is an amazing thing. I've shot about 40 portraits right now and interviewed about 40 people. And the craziest thing I've learned is um, when it comes to Caucasian, whatever, whatever they identify themselves as, they don't really identify themselves as white. They identify with mostly their religion. Yeah. When it comes to black people, everyone identify with their race. I'm a black male. I'm a black female. And it's, it's crazy that, because I, I didn't notice that until probably about two weeks ago when I was going through oh, really? all the, um, the interviews. And I was like, oh my God. And, and when it comes to Hispanic people, they mostly identify with their, um, like half with their race, half with their religion. Mm-hmm. And then it's, 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 it's amazing to figure out what people think of themselves. It's crazy. I, that was one of the more interesting questions from that series, because I was reading how people identify, mm-hmm. and I did pick up on that, how some people are identifying by their religion. Right, but I started right. thinking about, you know, how I identify myself and why I identify, identify exactly. myself that way. Yeah. Which is just like <clears throat> interesting because sometimes I sort of adopt because I'm Afro Latino. Mm-hmm. So, but most people look at me and they think I'm black. Maybe black, right? Right. So sometimes I'll say I'm, well, I'm Afro Latino just to say that I'm not what you think I am. Right. 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 But then, but, but I'm also choosing to identify myself based on race. Mm hmm. Right, rather than rather than rather than something else about myself, right, which is really reflective about the society we live in, right? That <laughs> exactly. even even ourselves we adopt adopt a those way. things, uh-huh. regardless of whether or not we really think of ourselves in that way. Because mm-hmm. um, more likely they're probably going to see you as that way, so you're going to say it. Uh, well, like one of the fr- one of the she's a Asian guy. Her name is I mean a Asian girl. Her name is um, Kristen Sue, and. That was the first thing she said. She said, I'm an Asian woman. But you know, then she went further and said, I'm a Korean Asian woman. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was like, wow, that's, I mean, you don't necessarily have to go that deep yeah. into what you identify as, but she did. And then I guess, you know, because you want to specify exactly what nationality you are, but it's, I, this, this, port, this project has taught me so much about yeah. people. And that follow-up question that you had mm-hmm. in terms of well, what do you think it means to oh, be? Oh yeah, yeah. That that, that was, was another. Th- that was good because I think that initial question is interesting, mm-hmm. right? Right. But that next question, what it means to in them. terms of what they think it means to identify as that, yeah, is even more revealing. Yeah, yeah this is crazy. Yeah, and and I, I think that's that's something I appreciate a lot about portrait projects mm-hmm. that do incorporate people asking the photographer asking them something right because i think when we take a look at each other in photographs there's all this pre uh we're already making assumptions about who these people are yeah you know like you know the black guy in the hoodie uh-huh. or you know or the guy with the tats up to his up to his Which chin net, or whatever yeah. it is you go in you see it you're able to take it in and you make some assumptions about who you think this person is right and then when you have when you pose those questions it really challenges you to rethink that. Mm-hmm. It does, and it's and it really it's does. Really fascinating. So, how does how does you know these these two projects sort of change the way you approach people? Because to some extent, as a photographer, you are really making your own assumptions. Yeah. In terms of who you think this person is, and then on top of that, making a decision in terms of how you want to interpret them. Mm-hmm. So, how does this insight that you've gotten from these projects um, sort of 
change or help you evolve in terms of how you choose to capture someone. Right. It made it harder. <laughs> it made it harder because, you know, you whether you know it or not, you put everybody you meet in a box. It's really hard to go in meeting and talking to somebody and not having a presumption of who they could be. It, I, I, I've tried many a times whenever I meet with somebody and I'm going to take their portrait and I try to go in with not having any type of, I'm sorry, any type of um, assumption of who they are, but it's human nature when you go in and talk to somebody, you see their face and you try to guess their age, like just instinctively, uh, they're in their mid-30s or, you know, it's, it's just who we are and that's how we try to case our situation, I mean, their, their situation. I've gotten a little better at it, but it's still really hard to go in with a, a blank mind of who that person could be. Yeah, because I think as, as, as a portrait photographer, you're thinking so much in terms of visual aesthetics. Right. You're thinking about, mm -hmm. okay, how's this light going to fall on them? Where's the yeah. shadows going to be? You know, mm -hmm. how, what's the composition going to be look like? And you're looking, you're pretty much objectifying this person in right. relation from to the, from the, the photograph. Right. But then there's that other part where you have to develop um, a rapport with them mm -hmm. so that you can elicit something from them other than the face that they're first willing to put out. Right. Because there's always, there's always the face, mm -hmm. you know, that, the, the, the facade that they put on, and then being able to go back, go a little further. Mm -hmm. And I think that that insight is part and parcel of getting there. Right. So how do you sort of get past that facade to be able to get something out of that person that they're maybe sort of reluctant to, to surrender to you? Because mm -hmm. they are... They are. Vulnerable. Right. To right. some extent. I, I think any portrait, any good portrait is a vulnerable. You got to get them kind of vulnerable, you know. Basically, I, I'm not going to say I'm a super duper people person, but uh, I think I could talk to anybody. I've been, I have a lot of different, I've been through a lot of different phases in my life where I, you know, I grew up in the hood and I grew up in a wealthy neighborhood and I, I've been, um, played football in college and also played soccer. Also, I, I did a lot of different things and I met a lot of different people in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that really helped me with the ability to just to try to sit down and talk to anybody. Yeah. You know? And um, as long as you make people comfortable and make them laugh, I'm pretty sure they're willing to give you what you want in a good portrait. Okay. Yeah. We also have the support of LinkedIn Learning. LinkedIn Learning is for people who love to create things. It's for people who are curious about different ways to develop their craft and their careers. Maybe you want to learn how to shoot editorial-style portraits, work with strobe, or sharpen your photo editing skills. Everything you need to achieve more is on LinkedIn Learning. Whether you shoot photos for work or for pleasure or both, LinkedIn Learning helps you take your photography to the next level. Gear courses will help you to get the most out of your camera, from DSLRs to mirrorless to smartphones. To help you enhance what you shoot, there's complete coverage of Lightroom and Photoshop, including CC 2018. In fact, they work closely with Adobe to release updated courses the day new versions are released. And now you can take advantage of this great resource for free for 30 days. And while you're there trying it out, check out Ben Long's series, The Practicing Photographer, in which he provides tips and insights into making exceptional photographs. It's one of the many great courses that you can view on your computer, phone, or tablet. 
And the best thing is that there are no hidden charges or upsells. Access all the courses you want, all for one monthly price. You can get a free 30-day trial with LinkedIn Learning today by visiting linkedin.com forward slash candid. That's linkedin.com slash candid, all lowercase. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you help make this podcast possible. There's a amount for people of color in terms of code switching. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, about, <laughs> you got to. Yeah. Yeah. To talk, talk about yeah. that. Because you just mentioned the fact that you were grew up in the hood, but you also, you know, moved around in different circles, uh-huh. different class, different races. Right. And, you know, right. what, what kind of skill sets does that provide you that helps you as a photographer? Um, I would say, I mean, it, if, if you've been around a multitude of different nationalities and people as a um, minority or as a black man, you kind of become a chameleon that you could change to the person, you could kind of change to fit the person you're talking to. Mm-hmm. So I know um, when I'm talking to like a homeboy from, the, from where I'm from, I'm not going to be like, hey, guy, how you doing? I'm not going to talk to him like that. Yeah. But I, I kind of change to make the person I'm talking to or the person I'm going to shoot a portrait of feel more comfortable with me so they could give me what I want. Okay. Yeah. So tell me about working with your clients. Mm-hmm. I mean, you sort of, I think you've sort of transitioned away from uh, weddings for the most part, right? Yeah, I shoot about five, six weddings a year. So most yeah. of you're doing editorial and commercial work? Yeah. yeah. So tell me about that in terms of what we're talking about, in mm-hmm. terms of engaging with people, in terms of building relationships with clients, mm-hmm. not only just for that initial job, but right. over the long term for repeat business. Uh, tell me about, you know, the skills that you've, you've felt that have been invaluable to you be, beyond your abilities behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, just being a good, honest, open person and um, being able to communicate what you are willing to shoot and what you aren't willing to shoot. And not necessarily uh, vocally, but through your website. Um, If you go to my website, you'll see that I shoot a lot of different, not necessarily genres, but I shoot a lot of different things. But if you go to my website, you won't see like cars, super well-lit Items. I don't shoot anything like that. So if somebody goes to my website, immediately you'll see that that's not my work. You'll know that I'm mostly a people portrait photographer and documentarian. So one of the interesting things you told me about uh, behind the stage is that you know you were going in and out of the hospital, and sometimes you would have times between treatments, and you'd pick up the phone and say, "I'm out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can work." Yeah. And I thought that was a testament to to the relationships that you had built. Yeah. That despite the fact that you had been ill and people were aware that you were sick, right. they still felt like, oh, let's give them the work. Mm-hmm. Not because they pitied you, but because right. they felt like they could rely on you, yeah. even though you even had been though sick. <laughs> even though you were sick. And I yeah. think that's really sort of amazing testament to who you are and and your and your talent as a photographer that they they were like they didn't hesitate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, did that surprise you? Well, whenever I got out, yeah, I was skinny, but I still <laughs> felt good. You know, I still felt like, hey, you give me something to, to shoot, give me an assignment, I'm going to do it. I think because they, they know if I if I told them I I didn't really I don't really feel good, I, I can't do it. That I'm being honest, and I always tell, I always talk to, I try to keep a good relationship with the people I work with. Even when I was in the hospital, I still sent promos. 
And you still send Yeah, I still send promos. Hey, man, I'm a photographer. I got to work. <laughs> <laughs> I still send promos. I still... Um, and, and some of my promos had links to my, my blog telling them, you know, what I was going through. But um, I never shied away from the fact that, hey, if you contact me, I'm going to work, you know, so... That's amazing because, man, there are so many people have all the excuses not to do that stuff, mm-hmm. not to promote, oh, yeah, not no. to update their website, mm-hmm. not to pick up the phone. Right. And you, here you are in the midst of chemo in a hospital bed <laughs> and you're still hustling. Yeah, That's got amazing. to. Got to. So what do you attribute yeah. that to? Oh, man. For one, probably my mama because she is a stubborn woman. She is a stubborn, hard-headed woman, but she's a hard <laughs> worker. And two... Um, I've been in athletics since I was eight, yeah. you know, and um, I've always heard uh, my coaches. I've always taken on the fact that no matter what you're going through, if you can walk, talk, move, and work, do it. Yeah, you know, um, and so I've always taken that to heart. Football, soccer, powerlifting, bodybuilding—you just do. Yeah, I, I think there's there's something to be said for doing stuff that's physically active, mm-hmm. uh, stuff that challenges you physically. Right. Because uh, you discover that discomfort is temporary. Oh yeah. Right? Oh yeah. And I think a lot of people avoid discomfort because right. it doesn't feel good. Yeah. And so the yeah. easiest thing to, to, to do to stop feeling uncomfortable is to stop whatever you're doing. Right. But if you want any gains, you want any gains, you, you want any gains, you gotta be willing gotta to hurt. go through that. It has to hurt, yeah. It's gonna keep hurting too. Yeah, gonna, if you want to keep if you want to keep progressing, it's going to keep hurting. Yeah, so you're gonna to have to get you're gonna to have to be bad fellows with pain. Definitely, you're a film shooter primarily. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and you you know you work for your clients, and you're still shooting on 35 mil, 35 medium format, digital yep. age. Yeah, some people would think you're like 30 30 <laughs> years older than you actually are. Yeah, you know because you're very reluctant to sort of embrace digital I'm completely. So why why shoot film in an age when digital is so much quote unquote easier? I can't get what I want from digital, and I'm not saying digital is bad because there are some amazing digital cameras. I just can't get what I want how I how I want it to look. I can't get it from 35 millimeter digital. I, when it comes to 35 millimeter, I shoot mostly black and white. When it comes to medium format, I shoot Tri-X and Portrait 400. I just can't get it the way I want it to look. Plus it's the process of uh, changing out the roll, smelling the Tri-X, smelling the film. It's all of it, all, all of it together is what makes me keep using it, you know? Okay. And if I could turn it out at a good time, I, sh- I see no reason why I should change. So, I mean, the big question for me is with clients, because clients want the stuff yesterday. Right. 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 So you got to turn it around because you got to process the film yourself if you're doing black and white. Uh If you're doing color, you're taking it to lab. Right. Um, So how do you, how, how does that work for you? Because I I would think that, Mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of clients, that would be like, uh, no, that's not going to work for (laughs) us. But obviously it's, you're finding a way to make it work for you. So how do you do that? Um, well, when it comes to uh, the black and white, I do, I do everything in-house. I scan it. I develop it in-house. Um, when it comes to color, I drop it off. I get it back the next day, and I scan it. I bought my own scanner. I um, bought my own... Uh, well, I had a Fuji Frontier scanner, but when I got sick, I had to sell it. So now I have a, uh, a little smaller Noritu scanner. Yeah, I'm, I got to do with it to make it work. Because, man, I think changing to, to digital, it would be so different for me. 
Like I'm used to having 36 pitchers. I know I have to make it work with 36 pitchers. Okay. You know, and but if I have a thousand pitchers, I'm gonna go crazy. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna just shoot every damn thing, right. you know. So, but with those 36 to 72 pitchers, if I shoot two rolls, I know I gotta make it work. You know, I gotta be more critical. But man, you give me a thousand pitchers, man. I'm gonna go eight shit. I'm gonna go crazy. Yeah, with medium format, you're dealing like 12. Uh, I shoot mostly six by seven. Six, oh, six so by seven. Ten. ten. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So. Tell me about that process. Cause I, I came from film, so uh -huh. I, for me, I understand the whole process of of slow, it forces you to slow down. Oh yeah. In front, you know, you really have to consider as opposed to digital, where you mm -hmm. can like just go. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and you're not seeing. Uh huh. Not necessarily seeing. You're just taking pictures and hoping that out of those thousand photographs, you right, get something right. that's decent. Right. So you know, the fact that you are being so conscious in terms of what's happening in the frame, mm -hmm. how do you how do you feel that that helps you to become a better photographer? I think it, it puts me more in tune, because um, I know every image, like every six by seven image is gonna cost me a dollar, a little more than a dollar, to develop and everything, and time to scan. So um, it puts me more in tune of what I'm doing. I don't have a screen to look at every time I take a picture, so it keeps me more in, in, um, in the moment. So basically, the way I see it is, if and this is not a knock on digital, but the way I see it is, if you take a picture and there, if you're in a room and every time you take a picture, I, I feel like looking at the screen is leaving the room to me. Yeah. And then when you're not looking at the picture, you gotta come back in the room. You see what I mean? That's, yeah. to me, that's how I feel. And so when I'm shooting film, I'm not leaving the room because I don't have anything to take me away from what I'm doing, mm -hmm. you know? That's, that, I know that sounds weird, but that's, yeah. that's how I see it. <laughs> you know, when you were in the hospital, you had a lot of sort of time to kind of think about, okay, once I get better and once I get out, mm -hmm. what I want to do. Right. You know, maybe how I want to do some things differently. Mm -hmm. In terms of some of the things that you felt like that you want to do mm -hmm. next, now that you're healthy, now you're better, now that right. you can be active on a regular basis, mm -hmm. you know, what, what are some of those things? Oh, man. Just in, I'm out. Uh, Breathe, keep breathing this fresh air because that hospital, oh God. <laughs> um, as far as photography wise, I'm gonna finish because I'm working on, I've been working on four projects for the past year and a half, so I'm gonna finish all those and start some new ones. Yeah. 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 So you, you're talking about uh, sort of completing the exhibition? Right, right. Well, America the Boat is finished for right now, but um, Lost Tejanos, Equal, and um, Septua, I want to finish those. And I, I just started on another one called Amen Hallelujah, which is um, documenting um, Southern black churches. Because mm, I grew up in the church. My grandmother, my grandma, God rest her soul, she was big in the church. I'm talking about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, every week in the okay. church. And I, that's what I grew up in, my mom too, so. I think that um, that's that's another project that would be really, you know, therapeutic and that I would love to do. Oh, well, why, why do you say therapeutic? Because um, before, not necessarily before, but um, before everything kind of started happening, you know, you, you go through phases of being really in touch with God and then not being in touch with God. And I think what happened to me, which... I don't want anybody to go through, but what happened to me put me back in touch with God. And um, 
because you never know, you never ask for help until you need it, some, right. at least me. And um, I know that what has happened has put me more in touch with God than I've ever been in my life. So I think this next coming project will just further that. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's just a something interesting in terms of, you know, when you, when you really need it, that's when you ask for help. Right. In this, in this case, you're talking about God, but I'm wondering, because you seem to st- strike me as sort of a guy, is like, if I need something done, I'm going to take care of it. <laughs> I'm going to do it by myself. Yeah. And I'm going to make it happen. Yeah. But you wouldn't have gotten through this whole process if it wasn't for the help of the doctors, the nurses, oh, yeah. your family, your oh, wife. Yeah. So, and that's something that I've learned as I've gotten older, mm-hmm. the, the value of being able to, you know, move past my own pride mm-hmm. and say, uh, I can't do this myself. I could do with your help. Right. So are you more willing to do that, not just with respect to your health, mm-hmm. but with other aspects of your life and even your career? Or are you still going to be like... <laughs> I think when it comes to family stuff, I ask for more help. When it comes to work, no. Yeah. I haven't learned that yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> I haven't learned that part yet. But... Um, I would say it, it's maybe less of a proper person overall. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was very proud. And that, yeah, that pretty much knocked me down. Which is, I think, is a good thing. Did that pride ever get in your way in terms of what you're trying to, try to do? Um, I don't think it got in my way. I think uh, it made me less desirable to be around because I was very prideful and very, very, very competitive. As what athletes are, yeah. You know, I was. I'm like, I mean, I'm still extremely competitive, but um, I think it showed me that you know, being getting what you want and working hard, not necessarily just working hard, but getting what you want all the time, isn't always the good, you know, a good thing. Okay, you know. So yeah. So matter, no matter if you work hard for it or not, getting what you want isn't always the best. Okay. Thing. Can you give me an example of that in your career of something that you wanted that you didn't get? Mm-hmm. where that outcome was actually the best thing that could have happened to you? Ah, uh, man. I could say, there was this wedding I really, actually, I'm not, I'm not going to lie, it was Tony Parker's wedding. I really wanted that wedding. Okay. I was in talks with it, but it just, it ended up being something I'm glad I didn't get. Yeah. And why is that? Uh, it has something to do with discounts and stuff like this. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> Not undervaluing yourself. Yeah. Is that yeah. what you were doing to exactly. try to get the job? I was thinking about it, but I didn't, do, I didn't go as long. No, we could have a whole different conversation yeah. about, oh, that's about totally undervaluing. Conversation. That's do you feel like you value right. yourself now to the point that you, oh, yeah. you want owner to cut Well, yourself? I've always had, but, you know, when it comes to shooting celebrity weddings, you, they kind of want something for free because, you know, they're a celebrity. Yeah. Because they think that you're going to, you get paid off of exposure. So, but in the end of it, I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. You find that you, 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 you like the people that you're working with where you don't have to necessarily do that? that oh, yeah. And way better. Way better. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, when you don't have to devalue yourself to get something, you, there isn't any uh, animosity there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I feel like if I would have devalued myself to get a wedding, I would have been kind of like, whatever. But um, I think me, just kind of sticking to my guns, that uh, I'm glad I didn't get that wedding. Because I probably, and I feel like uh, when you don't have that animosity, you could do your best work. Okay. You know, so yeah. So when you you meet someone 
who have not worked with before, right? Mm -hmm. They've seen your work. They give you a call. You either meet with them. What do you? What? What's the thing that you have that's on the forefront of your mind? Because mm -hmm. your pictures have gotten you through the door. Right. 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 So I, my attitude is like, if you if they're calling you or they're arranging the meeting, it's not about your competency as a photographer anymore. Right. It's about something else. Yeah. Right. Personality. So, so yeah. So tell me what it is about you that you feel like when they meet you or when they talk to you over the phone that they go, okay, he's the guy we we want. What's mm -hmm. the thing in your forefront that you think is your strength going in? Um, I would say my personality because I, I I I think I have the ability to make everybody feel comfortable. Because uh, when you first meet me, I'm not the m least imposing person to, you know, be around. And, um, <laughs> and the funny thing is, when a lot of my clients meet me, I guess because of my name, uh, Reginald Campbell, uh -huh. it could go either, I could be an English politician or I could be somebody else, you know? And when they see me... You don't have to work on the accent, part, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, um, when they see me, they're like, I've had a lot of people like, oh, oh, you're Reginald. Like, yeah, I don't know what you were thinking, <laughs> but yeah. And, um, but they, I end up, you know, making them more comfortable in front of me and everything. And I crack jokes. I'm not, I'm not a stuck up guy. So um, I crack jokes. I try to make them feel comfortable. We talk about whatever they want to talk about, you know. Well, uh, my last question that I ask each guest mm -hmm. is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to mm -hmm. discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired, or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, man. Do, well, they gotta, do they have to be alive? <laughs> no, no, it could be anybody. No? Oh, okay. I would say um, wedding-wise, one of my biggest inspirations was probably this photographer in New York called John Dolan. Uh, his wedding work, his work in general is just, it's kind of like he's walking around taking pictures with his eyes and not a camera. And because the people who they react to it, the way they're looking at him, it's not like they're looking at a camera. It's like they're looking at him. Yeah. And I love that about his images. It's like he's taking a picture without a camera. It, it's the weirdest thing. But if you look at his portfolio, it looks like they're just smiling at him. Like he told a joke and they're all, everybody's very comfortable. And somehow the picture got made. Yeah. And um and this, that, that resonates through his whole work. And I've always strived to have that type of images, you know? And um, let's see, I know everybody knows about Robert Frank. Robert Frank. Yeah. Um, that's another photographer that, that influenced me. And um, Gordon Parks, I would say he was a huge, well, he was influenced on my, on my, uh, on my dad. So my dad I had all, all these prints and books books and everything with Gordon Park so I would say he was another massive influence on yeah. that man it's been a real pleasure to sit down and talk with you really oh, likewise that. man likewise let's give him a hand thank you thank y'all thank you Thanks to Reg for sharing his time and his story. To find out more about him and his work, visit RegCampbell.com and RegCampbellPhoto.com. And remember, I'll be in Miami in December for the Miami Street Photography Festival, where I and several other photographers will be teaching workshops and classes. I'll also be leading two live panel discussions for the show. You can find out more by visiting MiamiStreetPhotographyFestival.org. 
And thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. We are close to releasing 400 episodes, and I would love to see a host of five-star reviews to help promote the show before then. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here at TCF. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the candid frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on a donate button on the candid frame website or the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but you can now easily share your favorite episodes on your social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at Ibarionex. And this is Ibarionex, and this is The Candid Frame.